T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. The recent history of Pacific Gas and Electric has been riddled with foreseeable disasters and preventable tragedies. Wildfires, gas explosions, preemptive brownouts, these are just the most visible signs of the utility's failure to properly maintain its aging infrastructure. Now, given the sheer scale of the repairs and upgrades that are needed to make this grid safe, it's fair to say California's energy system is in a deep hole. And as we're going to hear from our guest today, it's a hole that's been decades in the making. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're going to discuss how we got here. You know, how it is that PG&E, the largest utility in the country, came to be synonymous with negligence and calamity. And we're also going to consider the company's latest efforts to dig itself out of this hole. Joining us this half hour, we're going to be welcoming on now Wall Street Journal energy reporter Catherine Blunt. Her new book is a thorough examination of PG&E's history, including its many missteps. It's called California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Catherine Blunt, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, to understand PG&E's fall, it turns out that uh, we really need to understand its history, because a a lot of the disasters that us Californians have been living through really can be traced to very specific decisions that were made uh, decades or even a full century ago. Uh, But let's set the table for all this. Uh, To start with, how did PG&E become the sprawling utility that it is today? Sure. PG&E has a very long and storied history. Its roots date back to the gold rush. Um, It formed at the early part of the 20th century as a result of um, the acquisition of a lot of different little power companies that were cropping up to serve uh, different parts of Northern California. Um, It was really founded and and driven forward by these uh, electric pioneers who saw great potential in the hydropower in the Sierra Nevada um, you know, the vast river system and harnessing that, um, creating hydroelectric powerhouses to serve San Francisco. 
It only really ever had one real competitor. It was a company called Great Western Power. And uh, that company built a vast transmission system uh, to carry hydroelectric power from the Sierra foothills to San Francisco. Um, the two companies competed for a number of years until, uh, until they merged in 1930, creating the Northern California monopoly that we know today. Um, and it, uh, you know, it, with that, pg e had a lot of economic might. It supported job growth. It electrified different parts of the state. Um, you know, created a lot of the infrastructure that we rely on today. Uh, but there was a sort of an interesting consequence of this merger in that it acquired that great Western power infrastructure that was built um, years earlier. And interestingly, it was, in fact, a Great Western transmission tower that failed and ignited the deadly campfire of 2018 in which 84 people died in, in Butte County. So it's, a, you know, the historical lens is very informative for a number of reasons. Right. And this is a great example of what I was bringing up at the top, where these disasters turn out to have very deep roots, in this case, a, a full Century. So let's trace the root of this particular disaster, the campfire. I mean, in a lot of ways, it does come down to uh, the failure of a single hook on a transmission tower. Uh, trace that for us. That's right. So the, the transmission tower in question was in the remote reaches of the Feather River Canyon in, in Butte County. Uh, hard to access, you know, you know, very beautiful, but very, very remote. And this particular tower was built around 1919 or 1920. Um, the fire started when a very small hook about the width of a fist broke nearly in half, dropping a high voltage wire. Um, as a result, sparks uh, settled on the dry brush beneath the tower. And within a matter of hours, the, the fire was entirely out of control and the town of Paradise had been destroyed. Um, the hook that broke was original equipment, um, you know, hung around the time the tower was built, 1919 or 1920. And, you know, with every windstorm over the course of a century, it just wore down little by little to the point where the integrity was so compromised that it broke nearly in half. And as you said, that hook is and that tower is not something that PG&E constructed itself. And that has caused a number of problems. Uh, for example, the, the records of uh, the maintenance uh, and and the the early records of of how it came to be weren't necessarily available to PG&E. That's right. You know, over the course of decades, those records were either lost or or purged or something. You know, PG&E sort of lost track of the origin story of this infrastructure, which it did not build itself. Um, you know, back in the the early um, 1920s, and you know, upon uh, when when local prosecutors asked PG&E to produce records on the line. It really didn't have, uh, it certainly didn't have a complete set of records. It didn't have records on the particular hook that failed. It really didn't know exactly how old it was. Um, the company had to make an educated guess in this regard, and it was ultimate, ultimately FBI analysis that determined exactly how old that component was. Um, and it wasn't just this particular hook. There were other similar hazards on this line and, and other lines in the vicinity as a result of um, the age and the sort of the lack of inspections that had been um, that PG&E had been doing over the course of about 20 years. All right. Speaking once again to Wall Street Journal energy reporter Catherine Blunt. New book once again is California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and what it means for America's power grid. Another major disaster that you detail in your book is the San Bruno gas line explosion of 2010. And 
you actually find that in a lot of ways there are similarities in the sorts of decisions, mismanagement, uh, uh, oversights that made this disaster possible as well. That's right. So um, what happened in the in the San Bruno explosion in 2010 is um, a high a, a um, high pressure gas transmission line exploded in a neighborhood just south of San Francisco, um, destroyed a number of houses, killed eight people, and it resulted in a lengthy federal investigation of the way PG&E managed its gas transmission system. And it, uh, it was discovered that the company was in violation of uh, pipeline safety laws in that it had reduced the thoroughness of its inspections over time because it faced a great deal of expense pressure. Um, and as a result of that, it wasn't doing the sorts of inspections needed to make sure that it was thoroughly assessing the risks throughout the system. And you end up seeing a similar dynamic play out with an electric transmission over the years in which the company reduced the thoroughness and the frequency of its inspections over time for various reasons, in part because of expense pressure, so that the um, the inspection methods that it was um, choosing to do were not sufficient in evaluating the little pieces of hardware that were holding the lines, um, you know, holding them aloft in their towers. And uh, so the company wasn't aware of the state of the particular hook that ultimately failed and ignited the campfire. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it was there were a number of other similar hazards that it hadn't detected as a result of the way that it was inspecting the system. Yeah. So uh, a, a troubling record there. There's something of a pattern going on. And your book tries to examine it at some length why that is the case, why it is that uh, PG&E came to have this specific kind of oversight. Um, one of the chief reasons, I suppose, is uh, simply that there is this tension with uh, an investor-owned utility between uh, giving some profit to your investors and serving the ratepayers, the you know the average customers that live throughout uh, California. And uh, well, as you just mentioned a second ago, it turns out that the uh, maintenance of these systems isn't really the most profitable activity. That's exactly right. So there is inherent tension within the investor-owned utility model, and there's a, a simple reason for it. It's that you know investor-owned utilities like PG&E. Uh, which provide most of our electricity throughout the country, make an authorized rate of return overseen by regulators on large capital investments that uh, boost the overall value of the systems that they operate. They do not make money on day-to-day operations and maintenance expenses, activities like inspections or replacing little hooks like we were discussing earlier. Mm-hmm. And so the, the best financial performers are good at keeping expenses low and freeing up money to invest capital improvements. Um, theoretically, a company can strike this balance well without compromising safety, but pg e did not do this well uh, in the 20 years um, prior to the campfire. It, it really did not. It, there was, um, you know, there was ex- expense pressure on gas transmission. There was expense pressure on electric transmission. And in both cases, it resulted in, um, you know, a reduction in the thoroughness of the sorts of inspections that it was doing to the point where safety was greatly compromised. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we're going to dig into that story more in just one second. Uh, Real quick, just want to reintroduce you. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we're talking about the history of the nation's largest utility, PG&E, with Catherine Blunt. She's an energy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Her new book is California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and What It Means for America's Power Grid. So... A lot of problems there. I guess on the other side of the ledger, we do also have to acknowledge that when we're talking about wildfires specifically and the risk that this aging infrastructure has for sparking disastrous wildfires, it's a risk that's really grown in exponential magnitude over the past couple of decades with global warming and the drying out of the American West. As your book discusses, there's just so many places that were not considered high fire danger a few decades ago that are now considered high fire danger and PG&E has really inherited this problem. It, absolutely. Climate change is a really important part of this story. So California has been consumed by several very severe drought periods in the last you know, decade or more um, and it's currently in a severe state of drought. As a result, tens of millions of trees have died throughout Northern California. And the risk profile of PG&E's service territory as a result changed very quickly, making the consequence of a single spark from a power line much greater than it had been historically. And PG&E was slow to recognize this. Um, it, it, didn't, it really underestimated the extent of the risk as its service territory was changing. Um, And also the California Public Utilities Commission really underestimated the extent of the risk as well. So when it became most evident, uh, the company was behind on addressing it. So I guess the the big question hanging over all of this, uh, as we've been kind of alluding to this whole conversation, for us Californians, these disasters, these calamities, they've kind of become a fact of life. We've sort of expected them now. And we hear from people at all levels, from politicians, from PG&E itself, that, you know, it's time for a change. It's time to make the, the to upgrade the system, to make it safer. And yet it seems like that change is still so far away. And uh, I, I guess we've discussed this in a couple of different ways, but just for somebody who seems baffled by this problem, so many people trying to solve it, so little progress apparently being made, what would you say to help explain why it is that this has become so intractable? Why why is this utility system specifically such a tough nut to crack? Right. So, if you, I mean, you think about the size of this system. PG&E's service territory covers 70,000 square miles. It has you know, thousands of miles of power lines running through these forests that have been decimated by drought. Um, you know, we, we the risk of wildfire spread is a much greater than it used to be. You've got more people living in the rural areas of the country that, excuse me, the rural areas of the state that may be, you know, really uh, at high risk of wildfire, making the potential for destruction much greater. Um, and so the, the question is, how do you substantially reduce the risk of mechanical failure of a power line like we saw in the campfire or reduce the risk of trees coming into contact with live wires, whether that be a tree that's literally too close to the power line or a branch that gets lifted in the in the sorts of windstorms that we see in the fall and gets entangled and ultimately ignites a fire. One thing that PG&E has been doing in recent years, as everyone, uh, many listeners I'm sure are acutely aware of, is pre- preemptively shutting off the power when the winds pick up and equipment failure is, the, the likelihood is higher. 
Um, the idea being if there's no power, there's no spark. Um, but that's a, it's not really a sustainable solution to this because collectively, you know, as utility customers, we expect our power delivered to be both safe and reliable, especially as we add more electric vehicles to the grid, as we become more reliant for on electricity for home heating and for cooking. And um, so the it's it's a tough nut to crack because, I mean, the, the it's impossible to bring the risk to anything near zero um, just by virtue of the way the system is configured at this point. So there's um, a number of ideas and, and solutions being proposed, but there there's no overnight fix to this uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about PG&E's efforts to address these problems. And interestingly, they actually, it seems, read your book and didn't respond negatively to it. There's a, a blog post uh, that's been up on the company's website, and uh, it reads in part, We appreciate the thorough review by the author, Catherine Blunt, and will make the book required reading for company leaders as part of our broader effort to welcome feedback and learn from the past. So this is <laughs> usually a scathing book does not receive such a, a warm response from its subject, but uh, perhaps a reflection in part of the new leadership at PG&E? Yeah, I mean, I was the, the response is certainly heartening. I think it is reflective of the new leadership and the and the um, the message that she's trying to send. I think that one thing that's interesting and important to keep in mind is that, you know, within PG&E, as well as so many other companies, the employees within it have very specific tasks that they do every day, you know, of a singular focus. I think it becomes difficult for those within PG&E or any other company to have, a you know, a big picture holistic view as to all the different things and, and you know, the different challenges that have converged uh, historically to create the circumstances that it faces. And so if this book helps employees have a more holistic view of, of what's happened to the company over time and it you know has a positive um, influence on the decisions they're able to make, that really means a lot that it would have value like that. And we should mention that that new leadership uh, comes in the form of current CEO uh, Patty Poppy, who uh, took the reins uh, just recently in the last uh, year or so. And uh, in- Definitely striking a different tone. There was a, a little bit of a criticism coming from the mayor of San Jose just recently due to the blackouts that his city saw over the course of the most recent heat wave. He was really calling on PG&E to you know, come to account for those blackouts, saying he wanted a, a firm plan for how the company would update its infrastructure there. And, uh, you know, pretty strong words that he was putting his criticism in there. Uh, again, I think uh, Patty Poppy struck a fairly conciliatory tone in her response uh, to the mayor of San Jose uh, as well. So certainly a different tone coming from the top at the company. But uh, we have also seen leadership changes at PG&E before after major disasters. So hard to know where this is going to lead. That's right. I mean, uh, the company has certainly cycled through uh, executives over the last 20 years she says that she is here to affect real change and she'll stay for as long as it takes. Um, of course, that remains to be seen, no question about it. But one thing that's been very interesting to me is about six months after she took the helm in January of 2021, a tree fell on a small power line in Butte County, not far from where the campfire ignited and ultimately ignited the second largest fire in California history. That was the Dixie Fire. 
And she recognized very astutely that she couldn't just go up there and say sorry again, like all of her predecessors had done. And she used that opportunity to announce a new strategy that the company uh, had been working on and it was in the very early stages. And that was to bury 10,000 miles of power lines. Um, this announcement was a bit premature as the plan was not completely flushed out. Um, it's still not completely flushed out. The company is, is trying to figure out which circuits need to go underground. It's trying to figure out how it's going to pay for it. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a cheap proposition. They estimate it'll cost $20 billion over the course of a number of years. So it's really critical that the, the company figures out how to drive down those costs, especially since we're living in such an inflationary environment right now and rates in California are already very high. So there's a real challenge of doing this. But, you know, theoretically, this could substantially reduce fire risk throughout the service territory because if the power line is underground, it can't start a wildfire. So she's made some very bold moves as a leader. And I think that, you know, if the company can pull this off, it could be a game changer. But there are a number of uh, practical challenges to contend with. All right. Just going to reintroduce you again one more time. Once again, this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're trying to get a handle on how PG&E came to be synonymous with negligence and calamity, getting the view from Catherine Blunt. She, once again, is an energy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Her new book is California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. So uh, let's actually take on the second part of that title now. What does this all mean for America's power grid? Because as you suggest in your book, the sorts of problems that PG&E is facing, you know, aging infrastructure, lack of long-term investment, those very sim- same problems are facing utilities elsewhere in the country as well. Absolutely. California is not the only state with old infrastructure. The grid across the country is very old. I mean, there are components that were built just after World War II to support you know, major population growth. There are parts of the grid that were built well before that. And so because of the age of the infrastructure is becoming more prone to failure. Layer on top of that, more severe weather events exacerbated by climate change. Um, you know, the, the past patterns are not the same predictor of the future that they once were. And a lot of utilities, unfortunately, have, you know, backward looking models in the way that they assess this sort of risk. And so, Utilities everywhere are having to contend with this dynamic, right? How do you prepare for the future that doesn't look like the past? How do you confront these new risks? And I think PG&E's experience shows that if a company has a history of mismanaging spending or mismanaging risk, I mean, confronting these challenges becomes more difficult at a time when the consequence of doing so is becoming greater as we become more reliant on electricity, as the West continues to dry out. You know, as you have the threat of storms with the potential to knock out power to customers for, for days, um, you know, maybe the catastrophic electric failure on the East Coast isn't a catastrophic fire. It's a days long outage that you know affects the economy, It affects the health of customers who rely on electricity for medical reasons. It's a major inconvenience as it relates to work, you know, um, there's there's all I mean, our reliance on electricity is, you know, it's, it's immutable at this point. So. Um, managing these new risks is something that all utilities are going to have to do. Well, and speaking of climate change, obviously a major goal of California is to green up its energy infrastructure, make the transition to renewable energy. If we also need to be spending a significant portion of our attention on uh, fixing problems in the grid, are those two goals going to compete with each other? Can we do both of those things at the same time? Right. So whether it's investing in renewable energy or preparing 
the grid for greater electric, uh, excuse me, greater demand that's expected to come from adding more electric vehicles and other things. Utilities across the country are having to spend a lot in capital right now, large capital investments in the system or potentially in new renewables if they're going to be doing the building. And, you know, it's it's uh, that makes the balancing act, the sort of the the capital versus expense uh, equation that we were talking about earlier, um, just more challenging to to balance and to strike the right balance. And so um, one of my great hopes for the book is that in helping everyone understand these issues better, you know, we can be kind of more informed in the conversation about how to make these really challenging spending decisions that affect so many people. All right, we'll just have a couple of minutes left, but uh, just to squeeze in a last few questions, uh, I guess one of the the biggest questions hanging over all this is uh, how can we reform this system? Would a would a different system of governance over PG&E have made a difference? Uh, as, as you know, it is a investor-owned utility. There are other models out there. There's publicly owned utilities, uh, co-ops. Uh, would we have been better off in your view? if PG&E had been a publicly owned utility from its beginning? It's it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, the argument for the investor and utility model is that this is a capital intensive business and the profit motive allows greater access to capital. That's the argument. The company over the course of uh, 100 years really did have to invest a lot in capital to build the system that it has now. So hard to answer. Basically, bigger investments means you get better infrastructure. Right. And so, yeah, hard to answer. I mean, in the current state of affairs, there's always the question of how can we remove the profit motive? And, you know, there's a a philosophical debate to be had about that. But the other challenge here is that the no matter under, under under any ownership, there is still inherent risk throughout the system. There is still the need to spend a lot of money, whether that be, you know, ratepayer dollars, taxpayer dollars, wherever it's going to come from to address the risk. And there's still, you know, significant liability costs that result from fires because the utility under any ownership is liable for damages resulting from seemingly inevitable fires ignited by its power lines. And those costs, those costs have to be borne by someone under a public ownership model, that would be the taxpayer. So, you know, it's uh, the ownership question is a really difficult one. And there's not an obvious solution there. I guess in closing, you know, maybe the biggest question here that we are all wrestling with right now is uh, who is to blame for all this? Uh, the scale of the, the disasters have been so big, the loss of life, the loss of property, the the, the lives uh, honestly ruined uh, that, you know, we, we really do want to find that singular person to blame, that singular uh, villain. But uh, your book really paints a much more complicated picture, a picture of systemic breakdown that in some ways implicate us all to some degree, whether we're talking about the, uh, you know, the oversight of the utility from uh, state regulators or, or politicians or, you know, just society as a whole and how much we all as individuals have contributed to global warming. So uh, it's, a, it's a difficult question, this question of responsibility. I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on it. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. There's the a real desire for that sort of personal accountability. But no, it is absolutely a story of systemic breakdown, you know, by some, you know, one perspective is it's no one's fault. And the other perspective is that it's, it's truly everyone's fault. You know, the there's, there's um, everyone involved in this company, whether that be directly or indirectly, has played some role in the system breakdown over the course of a very long period of time. 
And one question that I try to explore pretty exhaustively in the book is this idea of corporate liability. You know, what it means that this company has, you know, now been twice convicted on charges of failing to safely maintain its infrastructure, but no charges were pressed against any one individual. You know, what does that mean? And I think, I hope that by sort of understanding how these little tiny incremental decisions made over the course of years ultimately result in disaster, it helps people have a better understanding of, of what systemic breakdown means in the case of a company like PG&E. Well, a lot to chew over right there, but uh, we are going to have to round this conversation out for now. We have been speaking one last time to Catherine Blunt, energy reporter for The Wall Street Journal, whose new book is California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Catherine Blunt, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the conversation. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. Talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 